Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by community pastor Ian Simpkins as we wrap up our series, That's Messed Up. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Good morning, Yellow Box. How are you? It is so good to be with you here this morning. How many of you got a coffee bean when you walked in this morning? If you did, why don't you go ahead and pull it out. If you did not get a coffee bean, uh, raise a hand and our greeters would love to get you one right now. I want you to take out this coffee bean and I want you just for, just for a moment just to feel it in your hands. Go ahead and inspect it. Maybe, maybe bring it to your, your nostril. Just take, a, just take a nice whiff of that this morning. If you're bold enough, why don't you just go ahead and just taste it? Just give it like a quick little, quick little lick. Great. If it's been one of those kinds of mornings, you want to go ahead and eat it, go for it. Um, if you need more than that, our greeters will have shovelfuls after the service that you can chew on. Okay, now how many of you have heard of the Kopi Luwak coffee bean? Anyone heard of Kopi Luwak? It is the most expensive coffee on the planet, and it costs per pound, anyone want to guess? $300 for a, a pound of this stuff. It's only grown in Indonesia, and it's supposedly like the most exquisite, most exotic, most complex tasting coffee in the world. Now, Kopi Luwak has a very interesting story. Kopi is the Indonesian word for coffee, and luwak is the Indonesian word for how we get this coffee. The luwak is uh, a wild cat. It's about the size of a fox. And look at how, look at how cute he is. Actually, it's kind of terrifying, actually, now that I get up close. The luwak is a cat that has a pretty interesting habit. It wanders all over the island where it lives, picking the most exquisite coffee bean berries to munch on. So it... It apparently has a sophisticated palate. It only munches on the highest quality coffee beans and then digests them. So in the morning, some of you are ahead of me. <laughs> the locals harvest these beans from, you guessed it. Okay, so for those of you who still aren't sure, I actually have a picture of it here this morning. I'm kidding, that's disgusting. I wouldn't do that to you. You thought I would do that? <laughs> Every single Kopi Luwak bean passes through the digestive track of a wild Indonesian cat. So did anyone actually taste it yet this morning? Anyone? <laughs> if you did, uh, that's okay. These are from Dunkin' Donuts. But um, <laughs> you think we have the budget for that? Come on. There's no way. Even though this isn't Kopi Luwak, though, I want us to hold on to this being throughout the message today because I think it's a reminder to us of something really important. This being is a reminder to us that sometimes the best things can come out of crap. Can I get an amen? <laughs> that God will sometimes bring about good, beautiful things out of the crappiest situations of our life. As John mentioned, this is the last week in our That's Messed Up series, and we've been following the life of a man in the Old Testament named Joseph. And just to catch you up to speed, 
Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons and the favorite of his father, Jacob. In fact, he was so favored that his dad made him this like fancy pants, colorful robe. And to make matters worse, Joseph has the brilliant idea of telling his brothers about a couple of dreams he has where they're all going to bow down to him. So, so kind of understandably, the brothers sort of have enough. They kind of snap and they, they first throw Joseph in a well and then they sell him into slavery. That's messed up, isn't it? So, so that was week one of Joseph's story. Joseph is then falsely accused of sexual assault by the wife of a very prominent governmental officer. So then he's thrown into prison again. And when we left off Joseph's story last week, he's left alone in this dungeon, assuming that God and the rest of the world has forgotten him. But God has not forgotten him. God is with him through every twist and turn of his journey. And just when it seems that all hope is lost in Joseph's life, God begins to bring about redemption. So while Joseph is in prison, Pharaoh, the the ruler of Egypt, has uh, a couple of dreams that totally baffle him. So Pharaoh calls in all of the wise men to try and interpret this dream, and, and no one can do it. People keep trying, they keep taking swings, and they can't, they can't crack the code. All of a sudden, Pharaoh's cupbearer remembers something. He remembers that he had met Joseph in prison years prior, and he remembers that Joseph had this incredible ability to interpret dreams. So Pharaoh says, well, we got, we got to get him in here then. So he summons for Joseph and brings him before the entire court. And Pharaoh tells him these dreams. And once again, uh, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret them. Joseph essentially says that these dreams are a warning to Pharaoh. And the warning is this, that they'll have seven years of abundant harvest. They're going to have more food than they can possibly know what to do with. But those seven years will then be followed by seven years of severe famine. Famine so severe that if they're not prepared, the land and all its people will perish. So Joseph then instructs Pharaoh to appoint someone to oversee a program to gather as much food as possible during the seven years of plenty so that they'll be prepared for the famine. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's wisdom that this is how he responds. Says, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. It's quite a statement. She says, You will be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So, like in a flash, Joseph goes from being a prisoner to the second in command of Egypt. And, and sure enough, Just as Joseph predicted, everything that he said would happen, happens. They have seven seven years of, of bountiful harvest, more food than they know what to do with. But because of Joseph's wisdom, they stored up for themselves and they save huge portions of food. Right after that, the famine comes. And Joseph's insight quite literally saves hundreds if not thousands of lives. But here's the thing, though. The the famine isn't isolated just to Egypt. 
begins to spread all over the globe. So now people from all these surrounding nations are coming to Egypt to get food because their people are dying. They're starving. And word has spread uh, that Egypt got out in front of this and has food to spare. So people from all over the place are coming to Egypt, to Joseph, to ask for food. And who shows up? Yeah, you guessed it. Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers, the same ones who sold Joseph into slavery, now come to Joseph begging for food. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Joseph recognizes them, but they actually don't, they don't recognize him. And, And notice what the brothers are doing here. It says they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Remember that dream that Joseph had back when he was a teenager? He's now second in command over Egypt and his brothers are bowing before him. Okay, so real talk. How many of you, if you were, if you were in Joseph's shoes, like the thing in your mind would be something like, oh, it's on now, right? <laughs> oh, payback time, right? Your brothers are literally bowing before you. But instead, Joseph, he decides to keep his identity hidden for a little bit. And, uh, and he, he decides to mess with them a little bit because, I mean, why not? So, so first, he accuses them of being spies. And the, and the brothers quickly explain, no, no, we're actually, we're, we're 10 of 12. Uh, we, we sold one into slavery, no big deal. Uh, the youngest one is still um, back at home. But Joseph pretends to, to not believe them at all and uh, throws them in prison. Like classic brotherly pranking, right? <laughs> Throws them in prison for three days. So after these three days, he brings them out of prison and he sends all of them home except for one. And he says, unless you bring this youngest one back to me, I'll just assume that you're lying and you all will have a price to pay. So, so the brothers hear this and, and they huddle up together and they begin speaking in their native tongue. What they don't realize is that Joseph understands everything perfectly. This is the language that he was raised with. The the oldest brother essentially starts laying into the other brothers, kind of saying, listen, it's because you did this to our brother all those years ago that this is now like cosmic payback from God. So so here's the scene. The, The brothers are huddled up. And they just start, they start fighting as brothers often do. And I want you to notice what happens next here. Because, because all, that's, all that's unfolding, Joseph's, he's hearing it, but he's also understanding it. And I think his response is so interesting. It says that he, he turns away and just begins to weep, just begins to cry. And I wonder if, like maybe he thought the pain was gone, kind of buried beneath the years but then like all of a sudden he he hears that native tongue and it's like all of the pain just comes rushing back and isn't that isn't that kind of how it is for us with like deep personal wounds some sometimes it's a it's a it's a song or it's a smell or it's an image or it's a it's a neighborhood it's it's a thing that when when you see it or when you experience it when you taste it all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the heartache just sort of comes rushing back in. For me, um, one such trigger is the song Everything I Do by Brian Adams. 
That's, don't laugh yet. That's, I was in fifth grade, and we had a, uh, a roller skating event. And um, if you remember roller skating in the 80s, um, there always was a portion in the uh, event that was called couple skate. And I had, I, had, I had mustered up the courage to ask Jessica to couple skate with me. And so she agreed. So I immediately skated to the bathroom and I made sure that my, uh, my hair was good, which it was not. I looked at pictures, uh, made sure my, my shirt was good, made sure there wasn't anything in my teeth. And I rolled out to the rink only to see her already skating with Matthew Parisi. Can you believe her? Oh, I was devastated. So I skated back. To the bathroom, I fell onto the floor, and I could hear through the door, don't tell me it's not worth crying for. And I was like, I am crying. I'm crying so much right now. And like a baby, I just cried in that bathroom for longer than I'd like to admit to you. But like jokes aside, though, don't we all have stories and situations that when we see or smell or experience it, it's like, oh, all the pain that we thought we hit the mute button on just comes rushing back. That's what I think is happening for Joseph in this moment. He's, he's seeing his brothers for the first time in decades. He's hearing their native tongue and, and all of a sudden it, it just becomes too much. Well, eventually Joseph stops messing with them and he reveals who he is, which imagine what that must have been like for the brothers, right? That must have been a real weird mix of emotions. Like, like, oh, that's so exciting. Oh, you probably remember about the whole well and slavery thing, right? Now, uh, and they're, they're probably sure that they're toast now, realizing that their brother is the second most powerful person in the world. But instead of retaliation, Joseph chooses reconciliation. He reaches out to his brothers to reconcile. And even though he was the one who was wronged, he hears what he says. He says, come Close to me, which in Jewish literature is way more significant than just simply standing close. It's like, it's like building a bridge. It's language of reconciliation. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, in case they forgot. And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That, I think, is such a powerful response to pain and hurt and sorrow. And some, some will interpret this sort of as like, a, well, I guess whatever happens, God made it happen. Like there's no, no free will, no, no sense in trying. What I think Joseph is saying here is way more personal than that. I think what he's saying is there is no sin so big that God can't redeem it. Whether it's a sin you've done or a sin that's been done to you, God is bigger than all the garbage, all the heartache, all the sorrow, all the brokenness that any single one of us in this room could experience or will experience. God is bigger. Joseph sees God as redeeming this really busted up, messy story. Joseph understands what's really happening here. And he says here in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me. He's like, I'm not an idiot. I, I know what you intended to do. He, do. he doesn't say, listen, I know you had the best of intentions. 
He's like, no, I, I, I knew what you were up to. You, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I don't know about you, but I think Joseph's story is remarkable. You have crime and deception and heartache. I mean, there's a lot of messed up stuff in this story. This is an aptly named series. So, So what do we do with this? How do we actually let Joseph's story inform us where we're at today? Because I, I know what a lot of us are inclined to do. Sort of hear a story and it kind of stays in the story category. Like, oh, that's a nice, that's a nice story from the Bible. But how, I don't know that that actually has anything to do with me today. How, how, do we, how do we find God in the midst of crappy situations? Because we've all been there, right? Or we're going to be there. Or we're there right now. So how do we find God in the midst of that? Whatever those situations may be, I know that for some of us, um, it's probably really easy to identify what that thing is. Like it might have been like a really specific relationship that went, went sour. It could be a really specific business deal that kind of collapsed. It could, it could be like a heartbreaking diagnosis that has sort of just left you feeling a bit unraveled. But I, I would guess that there are just as many of us in this room that have, have things, but it's, it's not as easy to pinpoint. It might be just like a, just a general feeling of sadness that we don't know what to do with. It could be like difficulty, like really, truly trusting others, like being vulnerable. It could be like maybe, maybe it's this pit in your stomach. It's like this abiding sense of loss that just won't go away. So here's what I want to do. I want to get really, really practical this morning. How, how do we actually apply and learn from Joseph's life uh, in our own lives today? Number one, um, we need to name it. We need, we need, and I don't mean just like name it like in, internally in our brain. I think naming it and speaking it is significant. I think from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible seems to give some real authority to the power of speaking the things that have busted us up, whether it's something we did or something that was done to us. And the thing that blows my mind about the Bible is how many stories like this there are. Like two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, of people crying out like, God, what are you doing? What is this? Did you forget about me? I mean, we literally have a book called Lamentations. Which means, I think, for us, that if, if the Bible doesn't seem to feel like we need to hide the stories of pain and sorrow, that means we don't have to either. It means that we can name it, we can speak it, we can confess it if need be. The Bible is full of people speaking out loud, that's the thing. Yeah, that, that's, that's what it is. And, and I think something powerful happens even when we hear ourselves speak it. It begins to take a little more root in our heart and our mind. So, so step one, I think... And learning how God is redeeming our stories is, is to name it. Step two is to find it. Find out what, what God actually says about it. Like some of, you, some, of, some of you are really great at Bible memorization. Anyone here like a supercomputer just really good at memorizing scripture? Yeah, that's, that's not me at all. You're the holiest people in the world. I, I admire you so much. But the, for the rest of us though, there's Google. Thank God. Um, like, people are regularly asking me, like, hey, uh, who's the one in the Bible that said this thing? And I'm always like, um, Jesus? <laughs> people are like, shouldn't you know? I should. You're right. 
Google can actually be a really remarkable tool. So let's say the, the feeling that you name is abandonment. You can go to Google and just type in abandonment scripture. If you type in abandonment scripture, it says that there are over 400,000 hits. That's a lot of options. That could, that could be a real weekend. One of, the, one of the websites I use a lot is uh, openbible.info. So click on openbible.info, and what you'll see is a, a long list of scriptures that deals specifically with that word. Uh, here with this search, it says we have 42 verses. 42, that the Bible speaks to the idea or the feeling or the sense of abandonment. So what I would recommend is pick like one or two. Don't pick a dozen, but pick like one or two and then open your Bible or your Bible app and actually read it in context. We've got to remember that scripture is not a fortune cookie. It's not a, it's not a magic eight ball. It's a part of a grander narrative. They weren't written initially with verses in them. So read its context. Get, get, a, get a sense of what was going on before or after this thing was stated. And once you have one or two verses, I would just encourage you, hold on to it. Like even, even pray, like make it a part of your prayer life. Just pray this verse out loud. It can be so revolutionary. Let God speak to you through it. If you're in a small group, do this with your small group. Like, hey, I've been really struggling with this thing and this verse really spoke to me. Can we, can we pray this verse together? Maybe in different translations. Just kind of soak in it a little bit. Maybe just reflect on it a little bit. Just contemplate a bit what this actually means for me and for us. Sp- spending some real time in God's word, I, I think will have a deeper effect than, than you could ever dream or imagine. Step three, let God redeem it. Let God redeem it. We, we can begin to actually loosen our white knuckle grip on that thing and let God actually begin to transform that situation. Joseph was sold into slavery, but God was with him and he was put in charge of Potiphar's household. Joseph was falsely accused and thrown in prison, but then he found favor with the jailer. Joseph was forgotten for years, by the way. This wasn't like a couple day thing. For years, he's in a dungeon alone, not knowing what's gonna happen. Not only is he freed, he's made the second most powerful person in the world. God God redeemed the messed up things in Joseph's life, not just to save Joseph's life, but to save the lives of many The redemption wasn't just for Joseph, but for the lives of thousands of other people. For our purposes, I'd maybe say it this way today. The most painful part of your story might be the most life-giving part of someone else's. That thing, that season, that valley, that that dark night of the soul, that thing that you're weighing, that even now you can feel it in your heart and your gut. That very thing might be the thing that God wants to use to bring life and healing to the people around you. Maybe even people you haven't even met yet. That's what redemption looks like. God isn't interested in just us like getting through the situation, just kind of weathering the storm. God has way bigger plans than us just simply surviving heartache. He wants to take it and transform it. He wants to redeem it and make it something beautiful so that more and more people can find their way back to him. God God redeemed Joseph's story and he can and wants to redeem our story too. And here's the thing we can't forget. Joseph didn't know that he'd end up in a palace. 
as far as he knew when he was sitting in the dungeon, like that was it for him. And, and just like Joseph didn't know how his story ended, we don't know how our story will end either. But like Joseph, we, we can trust, even begin to take the first steps to put our faith that God is with us and that he is for us. So I wanna, I wanna close with a story of redemption that I, I came across while preparing for this message. And it's the story of a woman named Shannon. Now Shannon, uh, when she was 16 years old, she was driving to school and just for, just for a moment, she took her eyes off the road to reach for some lipstick on the ground. And in that moment, she felt her car hit something. So she pulls over, she gets out of the car and she realizes that she's hit a woman who was riding a bicycle. She ran over to her, she quickly called 911. But by the time the paramedics got there, it was already too late. This woman had died right there on the pavement. At 16, Shannon had killed someone, had ruined a family, and had likely ruined her own life. Now, what Shannon didn't know was that that woman and her husband were both faithful followers of Jesus, Gary and Marjorie Jarster. When Gary found out that his wife had been killed, he, of course, the full weight of sorrow and sadness, it all just hit him as it would any of us. But he knew in his heart of hearts that God could turn the story for good. So here's, here's what he did. Before the funeral, before the funeral, before his wife's funeral, he invites Shannon into his home. And the way that Shannon describes the story is she, she walks in the door and Gary is down the hallway and he just starts running after her. But not, not out of anger, but out of love and compassion. And he, he just embraces her right there in the doorway. He just, he just wraps his arms around her and they just hug. And that afternoon, Gary sat Shannon down and, and he, he told her about Jesus. Told her about what Jesus had done in his life. Talked about how his wife loved Jesus without limits. And he looked her in the eye and said, and I'm now passing her legacy on to you. I want you to learn to love Jesus the way that my wife did, to bring healing and redemption wherever you go the way that she did. And Gary never pressed charges. And Shannon went on to become a Christ follower and an author. And she wrote a book called Every Woman's Battle that has sold over a million copies. Shannon has helped thousands of people find their way back to God. God redeemed the most painful part of her story so that thousands of people could know the God who created them and loves them and is pursuing them. Chances are you, you either just came out of a rough situation, you're about to head into one, or you're in the midst of it right now. The good news today is that no matter what you're going through, we know that in, what's it say, church? 
all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I hope you hear this this morning. Whatever you are going through, whatever heartache, whatever sorrow, God can redeem it. Your story isn't over yet. My story isn't over yet. So we can stay faithful. We can know that God is for us. We can keep moving forward and we can trust that God will bring about redemption in the end. That's the God that we love. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of one more day of the ways that you love us and pursue us, the ways that you know every part of our story and our heart. God, whatever thing that's weighing on us right now, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to name it, to find what your word says about it, and then to ultimately loosen our grip and let you redeem it. Thank you, God, for never, ever, 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 ever giving up on us. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.